So this is the fourth lecture on this series about kidney stones, and I think it's time to say that about 80% of kidney stones either contain calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate, or they contain both. And I explained in the last lecture that despite calcium being a major player in stones, you don't want to decrease the calcium in your diet too much because what happens is the calcium won't bind with the oxalate in the gut. So you're gonna increase the oxalate absorption and therefore increase the excretion of oxalate into your urinary tract. So unless your calcium intake is very, very high, we're really not looking to decrease the calcium intake in your diet if you make calcium stones. However, we do want to decrease the intake of oxalate. That's actually a very good therapeutic intervention that you can do that you don't need medication for, although there are medications that can also reduce oxalate. One of those is cholestyramine. So we usually give cholestyramine to bind bile salts in the gut, but it may also be used to decrease oxalate absorption because cholestyramine does bind oxalate. The other thing that can bind oxalate is citrate, and then, of course, as I already mentioned, calcium. So sometimes you can take calcium carbonate, such as Tums, and that will bind excess oxalate. So if you're prone to oxalate stones, you really have to pull up a list of foods and see what their oxalate content is. So you definitely want to avoid some really high oxalate foods like beets and rhubarb and spinach. But unfortunately, chocolate is a food that can contain a lot of oxalate, though it kind of depends on what kind of chocolate. So dry cocoa, higher content of oxalate compared to unsweetened chocolate, which has a higher content of oxalate compared to milk chocolate. So if you're one of those people who happens to believe that men, coffee, and chocolate are all better rich, this is one of those examples where that's not true, at least in regards to oxalate content. And so the reason I bring up chocolate is actually not one of the highest oxalate foods. It's just so prevalent in the diet because so many of us believed that a balanced diet of chocolate is holding an equal amount in both hands. It's usually not that hard to convince people to take away spinach and rhubarb and beets. I love beets, but still, I could get rid of beets in my diet much easier than I could getting rid of chocolate. The other thing I want to mention about oxalate is there are certain malabsorption conditions, particularly if you have a short gut or a short bowel syndrome or even just certain bariatric procedures like a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass where you're going to be more prone to having hyperoxaluria, meaning more oxalate that goes into the urine. So when we're seeing that population of patients, we have to remember that, particularly if they are stone formers. And so oxalate, I just want to make sure everybody understands, is a naturally occurring substance. It occurs in high quantities, particularly in certain plants, but it is not a necessary nutrient. I'm not a botanist, so don't quote me on this, but one of the things I read is that oxalate is in plants, so it can bind to calcium, so the calcium doesn't build up in a plant and cause too many problems, whatever calcium would do to a plant. But it really is just a waste product 
for humans, as far as we know, I don't think it has any important physiologic effects other than it gets excreted into the urine and then binds to calcium and causes stones. So I guess that's a physiologic effect, but what I'm talking about is I don't know of any benefit of having oxalate in your body. Okay, so let's get back a little bit to calcium because while decreasing calcium in the diet may not help, there is a medication which is thiazide diuretic, so your hydrochlorothiazide, your chlorothalidone, which when you give those medications, you're actually going to cause a hypocalciuric effect, meaning you're going to have less calcium in the urine, less calcium to bind to things like oxalate and probably phosphate. So far, the randomized trials have really not targeted calcium phosphate stone formers, but it's thought that it's going to work as well for that population as the calcium oxalate stone formers. Now, if you put your patient on a hydrochlorothiazide tablet and you want them to have less calcium in the urine, actually, if they restrict dietary sodium in addition to the hydrochlorothiazide, it's going to have an additional benefit meaning that low-sodium diet, which we talked about in the last lecture, will, in combination with a hydrochlorothiazide tablet, cause further reabsorption of calcium in the kidney, the renal tubule, and therefore you're going to have less calcium in the urine, less calcium to bind and form stones. And so the American Urological Association does have hydrochlorothiazide in its guidelines for the calcium-forming stone population, but I always give a little bit of caution in this because yes, we do see problems with hydrochlorothiazide. Anybody who's prescribed it for any amount of time knows that it is a good drug for treating hypertension, but patients can be prone to hyponatremia. And so when they get this low salt in their serum, it can cause a lot of problems, everything from seizures to cognitive problems, and you can go down the list. But my point is, is that when you put out guidelines, you know, the American Urologic Association, their hammer and their nail is stones in this situation for these guidelines. They're not going to take everything into account. And therefore, when you tell a patient, go on something that can lower your sodium and then further lower sodium in your diet, I think you ought to be a little bit cautious about that and probably check a basic metabolic panel and their sodium a couple weeks later just to make sure that you're not running into a hyponatremia problem. Okay, another drug that's worth talking about when we're talking about kidney and ureteral stones is tamsulosin, otherwise known as Flomax. And the question is, does it actually help in passing a stone? And the trials have been a little bit different as far as outcomes regarding this. Now, one of the more recent trials, which was July 17, 2015, and this was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And the reason why this trial may be particularly important is it's the largest clinical trial evaluating tamsulosin versus a placebo. And it looked at kidney stones, particularly distal ureteral calculi, and what they found is while it didn't always affect stone passage, it looked like it did have a benefit for distal ureteral stones that were large, meaning greater than five millimeters. Now, before this trial, there was a Cochrane review, and that Cochrane review happened on April 2nd, 2014, and they actually said 
alpha blockers could be considered as first-line treatment for patients presenting with urinary stones. So, in their review, they were looking at 32 studies, so nearly 6,000 patients. And so they were trying to decide if alpha blockers should be offered as part of medical expulsive therapy as one of the primary treatment modalities. And so the Cochrane Review basically said from their review, they think it does have some benefit. And therefore, my point is that when we look at the data and the opinions out there, most people are aligned with benefit of alpha blockers. Now, are they tremendously helpful? I definitely don't think that should be your only treatment. Are they extremely helpful in a hospitalized acute situation? Well, it depends, meaning you definitely don't want to give an alpha blocker if somebody's hypotensive or septic. So there are times when you don't want to use it in an acute situation. It may be particularly helpful for the population where you're sending them home from your clinic or the emergency room because stones can take a long time to pass. But again, in that outpatient setting of using alpha blockers, you're taking everything that you know about the patient into account. So if they're prone to hypotension, orthostatic syncope, you're probably going to say, let's skip the alpha blockers, meaning they're not absolutely necessary that you prescribe tamsulosin but most people can tolerate them just fine. And if it's gonna have even a little bit of benefit, I think the patient would appreciate it. Some people are lucky and they pass a stone in a day or two. Other people, it can take a few weeks. Anything we can do to help that out is always a benefit. You know, pain, whether it's in life or kidney stones, it hurts to move on, but just remember that hanging on is even worse. All right, um, some people talk about calcium channel blockers, particularly nifedipine. My understanding from my reading of the literature is that tamsulosin, when compared to nifedipine, usually wins out, but that's not to say nifedipine can't be used. I just have no experience in using it for kidney stone disease, and I rarely use nifedipine for things like hypertension. I just want to mention that sometimes you'll see some patients or some physicians who prescribe nifedipine for kidney stones, and there is some data behind it, even though it looks like the data is better for tamsulosin. And on rare occasion, you also see some doctors that prescribe both, which is fine, meaning if you're going to do a combination of tamsulosin and nifedipine, you just got to make sure that that patient can really tolerate it, from, particularly from a hypotension standpoint, meaning we don't want our patients to get really low blood pressure, pass out, break a hip, break a nose, get a skull fracture, you know, all the things that can happen from low blood pressure. So just make sure that the treatment, the benefit outweighs the risk. But hey, we do see a lot of patients with significant hypertension. And in that population, you don't have to worry too much about lowering the blood pressure a few points. In fact, those therapies like tamsulosin and nifedipine are probably going to be beneficial in treating their hypertension, not to mention their kidney stones, if that's what you're using it for. But really things like tamsulosin and nifedipine are for the treatment of passage of a kidney stone when it comes to nephrolithiasis. And so you're not using it for prevention of further renal stones, at least as far as I know. I don't know of any benefit of doing 
long-term tamsulosin and nifedipine for those reasons. Obviously, we prescribe tamsulosin a lot for benign prostatic hypertrophy for the long-term and other issues. But when it comes to kidney stones, and that's the reason we're using it for, it's really until passage of that nephrolithiasis. If they need it for another reason once the calculi is out, fine, go ahead, keep it on. Otherwise, you want to de-escalate the amount of drugs a patient is taking. Oh man, where's the time going? All right, you know, Einstein said that time is what prevents everything from happening at once. And while I did want to get to several things while talking about nephrolithiasis and kidney stones, such as imaging and ultrasounds and CT scans and when to use NSAIDs, opioids, both the multiple options in urologic procedures and interventional radiology, lithotripsy. I think my attention span is starting to wane for this topic. So maybe at some point in the future, I'll come back to that. Maybe it just helped stimulate some thoughts, some reviews, some new concepts on what we have covered so far. And to paraphrase Stephen Wright, he said something along the lines that a conclusion is a place where you end up when you get tired of thinking or tired of talking in this matter. So anyway, I will catch you on the next round. This is Dr. Gil Parat. Adios, amigos, and may the force be with you.